And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even room at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. All right, well, as you guys probably know, we are in the middle of a sermon series through the Gospel of Mark, and we made it to chapter 2, and we're sort of dropping in to the story uh, that we were in the middle of last week. So just to catch us up, last week we saw Jesus' first acts in his public ministry, okay? So he, uh, he sort of goes public, and the first things that he does is he teaches with authority that no one had ever seen before, no one had ever heard before. He teaches with the authority of the author of the book and not just as the reader of the book. Jesus is the author of life. And then we also saw that he acted with authority as the author of life. He went around extending heaven on earth. He brought healing. He drove out demons. He healed the sick. And he takes this tour on the road, so to speak. Okay, He goes public. He drops his first album. And then he goes on a tour through the whole area of Galilee. And he does the same thing over and over. And verse 39, which we saw last week, chapter 1, summarizes what he was doing. He was preaching in the synagogues. And he was casting out demons. In other words, speaking the authoritative word of God and acting as the authoritative God. And so we pick up here. We kind of drop in in chapter 2 this morning. And we see that he's, he's home from his first tour. He comes back to Capernaum. And we read in verse 1, specifically, that he's at his home. Now, I think this is kind of interesting to think of Jesus as having a home, right? He's got a living room. Uh, I don't think we should pass over this too quick. Now, this may have been his own home, or it may have been sort of a home base that he used. It may have been Peter's mother-in-law's house, who we saw last week in Capernaum when he healed her there. But we're not, we can't be sure. But either way, it's worth thinking about Jesus in his home. Think of your home. What do you associate with home? It's kind of my space, right? Safe spot. It's where you can let your hair down. After a long day of work, you come home, you... It, it, warm meal, relaxing, no one's like, you know, after you like they are all day at work. Uh, maybe kick back, have a, you know, watch TV, have a beer, even walk around in your underwear. Like that's kind of what home is, right? It's your safe place. This is Jesus's home. It's a safe zone, his home base. And it makes it even more amazing how he reacts to what happens in this event. Because what happens here is, is frankly, it's invasive, right? I mean, it's, it's rude. Um, 
no offense to Jim, they tear the roof off somebody's house. Okay, I'm like, sorry. Um, this, is, this is destructive. It's also kind of hilarious, all right? The word gets out, Jesus was at home, and everybody from town shows up. So many people that were standing room only, so Jesus is like, all right, let's crack open the Bible. There's some good stuff. And he does his teaching again. It's compelling. It's authoritative from the author of life. And then four men hear that he's there, and they bring their friend who's a paralytic. We don't know how long he's been that way. We don't know if he was born that way. But we know that he lives on a mat and that he can't move on his own. So his four buddies bring him to the house, and they see there's no way through the front door, standing room only. And so do they go home? Do they say, well, we tried. Best of luck. No. No way. They make a door where there wasn't a door. Houses in this region uh, at this time had a common architecture. Oftentimes there would be stairs on the outside of the house going up to a flat roof. This roof would be supported by beams. They would thatch kind of branches on top, and then they'd cover it with mud, like up to two feet of mud that was packed in there to keep the weather out. And so the flat top roof with stairs going up would serve as almost like a deck serves for us, right? People would eat up there in the cool of the evening. Sometimes grass would be growing. They'd even keep animals up there sometimes, all right? So you got this thick dirt roof, flat, and these buddies haul their friend up on the mat, say, hang tight, we got a plan. Don't worry about this, all right? And they start digging through Jesus's home roof with their hands. These brainiacs start digging into Jesus's own house. Um, Pieces of dirt would have been trickling down on Jesus' head even before the sunlight came through. Everybody's kind of looking up like, what is going on up there? All of a sudden, it opens up, hands reach through, they're pulling more mud back, and, dro- and they drop their friend at Jesus' feet, and he is laying there, and he's a paralytic. Of course, everyone would have been shocked. They probably would have been offended on Jesus' behalf, but at the same time, everybody would have understood, Right? I mean, this is what Jesus does. His ministry had been short so far, but he is already known as a healer. He was already known as someone who brings health where there's illness, who brings you know, life where there's death. So it, it's, it's offensive, but at this point, it still makes sense, okay? They crossed socially acceptable lines, but they did it out of love. And everyone in the room knew what Jesus was going to do next. There's, there's a lame man laying at his feet. They'd seen this story before, but then Jesus does the thing no one expects him to do, as Jesus does, right? Jesus responds to paralysis with forgiveness. Why? I mean, it's, it's sort of like everybody there would have glanced at each other. He says in verse 5, to the paralytic, to the one who can't walk, son, your sins are forgiven. People start to glance around the room, kind of look at each other out of the corner of their eye, whether they say it out loud or not. Everyone in the room is thinking, nice gesture, Jesus, but I think he's looking for something else. He's looking for a different miracle. That's a nice miracle. That's a good one. We want that miracle. But this guy's actually looking for a different miracle. Why did Jesus get the wrong miracle? That's the question I want us to think about this morning. Why did Jesus apply the wrong miracle to the paralytic who is laying at his feet? I think there's three reasons in our text that I want to point out. There's probably more. Uh, Jesus offers a deeper diagnosis to our lives. Okay? Second, Jesus reveals a deeper identity for his life. And then finally, Jesus is encouraging a deeper faith in the life of his followers. Why does Jesus apply the wrong miracle to this guy's life? 
Of course, Jesus didn't actually apply the wrong miracle. This man came to Jesus with the hope and the faith that Jesus would address his greatest need. But what Jesus does here is actually reveal that he had an even deeper need than he knew about. This man comes to Jesus with a legit presenting issue. Okay, He can't walk. His spine doesn't work. We don't know how long this has been true, but this is, uh, his body is broken. And Jesus, the great physician, in an instant, in a split second, diagnoses this man's life. He sees that the presenting issue is real, it's devastating, it's, it's um, tragic, but that it's actually not the deepest thing wrong with this man. This man thinks his biggest problem is he has a bad spine and he can't walk. But in an instant, Jesus sees that this man's actual deepest problem is he has a bad soul and he can't walk with God, okay? And he sees it in a moment. And of course, we do this all the time, okay? I mean, you and I. We uh, have legitimate presenting issues that we come to Jesus with all the time. Um, Ask yourself this. Uh, if you could have one thing addressed by God, what would it be in your life right now? If you could have him, I mean, if you could be in front of the healer, the one who you know does miracles, and you could ask him to do one thing for you, what would it be? I mean, we have difficulties in our current circumstances. We have hopes and we have fears about the future. What would you have Jesus address? What issue would you present before him for his healing and his miraculous intervention. If you could ask God to fix one thing, that anxiety, that nagging difficulty, the suffering, if you could ask him to grant you that hope, that dream, that thing that you've been praying for, whatever it is, now imagine he did it, okay? You're presenting issue, he fixes it. It's a miracle, done, perfect, it's fixed, okay? Now what happens? What would happen next? I'm reading a book by Tim Keller, who's one of my go-to dudes. Uh, He's a pastor in New York City. And in that book, he references a a, a journalist, um, a a woman named Cynthia Heimel, who who this journalist wrote um, an article I'm going to quote in just a second. But this journalist, Cynthia, she got to know a lot of struggling actors while she worked in New York City. Okay, so this is like the crowd who's patching together part-time jobs, you know, serving restaurants, and, and they're trying to make it big. Like, they want to be famous, they want to be rich, they want to be known, all right? They want to be celebrities. And so she works with, or she gets to know a lot of these struggling artists, and then some of them actually make it big. Okay, like, the thing for them happens. The thing that they want happens. And she wrote a piece about celebrities that she's known in both worlds. And this is what she wrote. I pity celebrities, she said. No, I really do. They were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted fame. They worked, they pushed. The morning after each of them became famous, she writes that they wanted to take an overdose because the giant thing they were striving for, the fame thing that was going to make everything else okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment, happiness, it had happened. The thing happened, and nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. And then at the end of the article, she adds this line. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish. That's pretty profound, right? I mean, imagine if God gave you the thing 
that you wanted, that presenting issue, whatever it is, um, and it didn't change anything. And you were still you after it happened. Giving us what we think we need, whatever it is, giving us what we think we need to be whole instead of what we actually need to be whole isn't loving, it's cruel, right? But God is not cruel. And instead of being cruel, Jesus misapplies a miracle. He sees what this, man's, what this man needs, what he's presented with, but instead he does this man a deep kindness, and he doesn't give him what he wants first. He give him, gives him exactly what he needs first. He sets aside the urgent, and he applies the important cure. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to play a rotten joke on you. I will not heal your external circumstances and leave the deeper illnesses of your life untouched. I'm going to heal your greatest need. Sons and daughters, he says to you and I this morning, your sins are forgiven. Might not be the thing that you came to church to hear, but that's the thing we all need to hear. Jesus is being kind. Sons and daughters, your sins are forgiven. The miracle of forgiveness is applied to you. The miracle you need, whether you know it or not. By these words, Jesus shows us who we truly are. Okay, we are the ones in need. We're the ones with sick souls. But he comes with a miracle of forgiveness. And at the same time, Jesus shows us who he truly is. All right? Jesus reveals a deeper diagnosis in us, but he also reveals a deeper identity in himself. Picking up in verse 6, some of the scribes were sitting there. We met the scribes before. We're going to talk about them. And they're questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. And blaspheming is just a religious word in the, in the, in the Bible that means you're acting like you're God. Okay? You're, you're trying to be God. And it was one of the greatest offenses. It is the greatest offense for a man to put himself in the place of God. And these scribes are saying, the way you're talking is blasphemy. You're talking as if you're God. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, the scribes were no friends of Jesus. We saw that in the past weeks. We're going to see that in coming weeks. But you got to hand it to the scribes, man. They knew their Bible, okay? I mean, they knew their Old Testament better than anyone in this room knows the Bible, probably combined. These guys had it memorized. They knew the word of God. And when they heard Jesus claim to forgive sins, they heard an outrageous claim. It'd be something like this, all right? The thing that we're all hoping happens, happens. This week, we get dumped on, and it's two feet of fresh powder up on the mountains, okay? All of us instantly contract the same flu, and we ditch work, all right? And we all head up to the mountain the next day. Um, Fresh tracks all day long. I mean, you're just lapping it. It's like the greatest ski day of your life. And towards the end of the day, you're enjoying another beautiful run uh, down the mountain, and out of nowhere... Some maniac, and they're, you know, we know who they are, they're out there. Some maniac comes up behind you and just totally plows you over, okay? Doesn't say a word, doesn't give you a warning, doesn't say sorry, doesn't turn his head, doesn't see if you're okay. He just plows you over. You're eating a face full of snow, your gear is scattered all over the mountain. He doesn't even turn around and he just keeps on cruising, okay? So what do you do? You quick gather up your gear and you're after him, aren't you? You chase him down, you catch him at the bottom of the lift, and right as you are about to confront him, You don't know what you're going to say yet, but it's not going to be pretty. Right as you're about to confront this maniac, I I appear, right? Unbeknownst to you, I'd actually seen the whole thing. I was on the same run. And I say, "Uh, don't worry, I've got this. And I turn to the man, and I say, you're forgiven. Okay? 
You're forgiven. Now, you're thinking two things. First, where in the world did Luke come from? Why is he even here? Second, who gives me the right to forgive that man for plowing you over, right? I don't have that right. Who gives me the right to do that? Only the one who is offended, only the one who has, is damaged, only the one who has been injured has the right to forgive the guilty party. I don't have that right. I can't randomly step into your quarrels and announce forgiveness for people who have sinned against you. Only the person sinned against has the right to forgive. And yet, here's Jesus. Forgiving this man's sins, all of them, not just that one sin of digging through his roof, okay, but all the sins, plural, that this man has ever committed, and Jesus stands there in front of him and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Every way that you have mistreated anyone in your entire life, every way that you've not followed my law, every good deed that you have left undone, I personally forgive you for those sins. That's crazy, right? That's crazy. For all we know, Jesus had just met this man. This is the first time that he had ever laid eyes on him. And this is what the scribes saw. It's totally illogical. It's rude. It's even evil unless Jesus is actually the most offended party in every single sin that humans have committed. Unless Jesus is the God who created this man and us and the God who sustains us and the God who writes our very life into existence. Unless Jesus designed how relationships are supposed to work, unless Jesus designed how our souls and our minds are supposed to work, and that every lie and every lust and every injustice and every selfishness and every pride in our life is not only against another person, but against the God who created us and them. You know, in the Old Testament, when King David wrote Psalm 51, he had sinned basically against every single person he knew, okay? He had killed or had ordered the murder of his friend after committing adultery with his friend's wife. He had lied to his advisors. He had abandoned his troops. He would basically sinned as the king. He would sinned against everyone in the nation of Israel. And yet in Psalm 51, as he prays his repentance of these sins, he prays this to God in heaven. He says, I know my transgression." I know my sin is always before me. It's against you and you only that I've sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's outrageous. He sinned against every single person he knew, but he's saying, God, it's you, and it's you only that I've sinned against. You are the first person I sin against, and you are the primary person I sin against when I sin. God is the one that is most neglected. He's the one that's most betrayed in all of our misdealings with one another. When we sin against one another, we sin against God himself. And by forgiving the lame man who stands at his feet, Jesus is saying, I am the God. I am the one that every sin is committed against by everyone in human history. And it is Jesus's right to forgive us. He can intervene in every interaction that we have with each other. He can step in to that fight that you're about to say have with somebody and say your sins are forgiven because he was offended by all of our misdealings with one another. But just because he has the right to do it, just because he has the right to forgive, doesn't mean that forgiveness is automatic, right? I think we in the, in the Western world, in the modern world, we like the idea of forgiveness, Um, 
I think most other cultures and most other religions actually understand that forgiveness ain't that easy, right? Just because you have the right to do it doesn't mean it automatically happens. In fact, forgiveness always involves paying a cost. Here's another story. This one's true. I'm not going to make this one up. So when I was in junior high and high school, I was in a small group Bible study with a bunch of other guys my age, and there was a brave leader who hosted us at his home every week um, named Kenny Bopp. And Kenny Bopp is one of my, my heroes in the faith for his simple act of hospitality. At the time, he was a single guy, but he had a real job. He had a real life. You know, he had a real house. And he would invite 10 or 15 um, adolescent boys into his home every week and open up the Bible with them. Okay, that's like an act of great bravery on his part. And to this day, he's a good friend of mine, and he is one of the most influential people in my spiritual life. So we um, were in high school at the time, so by definition, we were idiots. And each night at Kenny Bob's house went pretty much the same way. went like this. Uh, We would get there, and we'd clear all the furniture out of his living room. All right, first step, step one. Step two, take all our shirts off. Step three, WrestleMania for, you know, 20, 30 minutes, okay? Step four, a few video games. Halo was the, uh, the game of the, of the day, so we played a bit of that. Uh, step five, Bible study for as long as we could pay attention. Step six, repeat the whole first half all over again, all right? So it was one evening when things were getting particularly vigorous and violent during our wrestle match, and one of my buddies literally picked up a friend of mine and threw him through Kenny Bop's wall, okay? So we, are all, we all stand there. We're all, we all stop. We all look at the human-shaped hole in his drywall going into his bedroom. And then we all look at Kenny Bop, and then we all just run out of the house, okay? We're gone. So Bible study's over. See you next week at Small Group. Now, here is the thing. In that moment, damage had been done to Kenny Bop's house, hadn't it? There was a cost that was going to be paid. Uh, Kenny Bob had a choice to make. He could make us pay for the damage that we did to his home, and that would have been totally fair and just and right and appropriate and probably really, really good for us, okay? Or he could forgive that cost and bear the cost himself. But here's the point. There was a cost that had to be paid. When we did that damage, we were on the hook for the cost or he was on the hook for the cost. He could ask for fairness, or he could, um, he could offer forgiveness. But either way, there was a cost. There was a debt standing, and we would pay it, or he would pay it. We never saw a bill, okay? Because Kenny Bob's the man. But the point is that forgiveness, by definition, is willingly paying a cost for the damages that another person has done. It means not demanding repayment, And it means not causing the same damage to another person that they caused to you. So when Jesus says to this man and to you and me, sons and daughters, your sins are forgiven, he's not just saying that he has the right to say that because he's the offended party. He's also promising that he will bear the cost of all the damages that we've ever done to one another, that we've ever done to this world and that we've ever done to God himself. He's going to cover the debt of those costs that we incur. Not just the cost of Kenny Bob's wall, not just the cost of Jesus' roof. Jesus is saying he's going to bear the infinite costs of us rebelling against an infinite God. A number of scholars, commentators that I read 
on this chapter said, this miracle, this miracle of forgiveness is when the shadow of the cross really falls and, and, and in the Gospel of Mark. This is where we start to see that Jesus is heading for the cross no matter what happens. When Jesus promises to forgive the debts and the damages of human sin, he's committing himself to dying on the cross in place of sinners to bear the cost of what we deserve, the miracle of forgiveness. The story wraps up this way. Which is easier, he asks, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But so that you may know the Son of Man has the authority on the earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he did this immediately. And they were all amazed and they glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. That's a good question, isn't it? Which is easier? To say to a paralytic, get up and walk, or to say, your sins are forgiven? Well, I mean, just to say the words, your sins are forgiven, are easier, right? But is the verifiable miracle of seeing a lame man stand up and walk easier for Jesus to do? Or is it easier for him to forgive the sins of the world? As far as we know, it actually doesn't cost anything to heal people. I mean, it might, but we don't know. I mean, he's the author of life. He spoke our bodies into existence in the first place. He may just speak our bodies back to health. But we do know, by the very definition of what forgiveness is, to offer forgiveness to you and I costs him an infinite amount. It costs him his life. He pays for the damages that we've done so that we can receive his perfect life and his perfect access to the Father. That's the gospel. It's costly, but it's already done on your behalf. So what do we do with this miracle? I want to wrap up by kind of asking a question. What what do we here, Grace Church, like what do we do after reading this passage and this miracle of forgiveness? What does it look like for us to believe this? What does it look like for us to enjoy these gospel facts? What does it look like to grow in our faith in Jesus together. Because it's interesting, chapter 2, verse 5, is the first mention of faith in the book of Mark. And it's a beautiful little reference. Uh, it says, when Jesus saw their faith, the, the friends who were carrying the mat of their buddy to lay him at Jesus' feet, when Jesus saw their faith, the faith of four friends, he said to the paralytic sons, or son, your sins are forgiven. What can we learn about our faith and our community of faith from the faith of these men. I just want us to notice that faith in Jesus is an activity, okay? It's an action. And what I mean here is these men never say anything. We have no idea what they believe. Um, They don't declare their, you know, theological system to Jesus before laying their friend at his feet. Um, We have no idea what they're feeling. um, But we do know that they have one thing in mind, Get my buddy to Jesus, okay? Just get to Jesus. Is there, is there a crowd covering the door? Fine. Make a new door, okay? Is it, is it socially unacceptable? Fine. Dig a hole through his roof, okay? Is it going to incur some cost? Fine. We'll take care of it later. Get my friend to Jesus. And I think Jesus is saying, that's faith, okay? That's faith. Um, We don't need perfect theology to be forgiven. We don't need all the right emotional experiences to be forgiven. We don't even need a proven history of virtuous behavior, however you define that, to be forgiven. 
what do you need to do to be forgiven? You got to just get to Jesus, right? Just get to Jesus. Faith is a disposition of your heart and a life that says, get me to Jesus and keep me close to Jesus. It's an active trust that he's enough for all of our needs, whether we know about him or not, whether they're the presenting issues we have or whether he's going to go to work on us and do deeper things. Just get to Jesus. And what's so great is Jesus completely approves of all this craziness. All right, These guys just destroyed his roof. This was his home. And in this story in Matthew, we read that, uh, or Matthew writes, Jesus saw their faith, and then he adds this little detail, and he tells them to take heart, or actually have courage. I like that. I think it's Jesus looking at him with a wry smile and saying, good job, boys. You did the right thing. You got your friend to me. You put him in the right spot. You're in the right spot. Apparently, nothing pleases Jesus as much as being trusted to be good to us when we land at his feet. And that's all faith is. Trusting Jesus is good. Trusting Jesus loves us. Trusting he's going to heal all our deepest faults and address our deepest needs. Sometimes we've got the energy to do that digging, right? Sometimes we have like the vision and the perseverance and like, yeah, okay, there's going to be difficulties, doubts, fears. We're going to be angry at God, but we can sort of dig through that to get to Jesus. Sometimes we have that energy and sometimes we're the one paralyzed on the mat, aren't we? You guys have been there. I've been there. Sometimes we're the numb one, the indifferent one, the one full of fear or doubt or just sort of like, ugh, whatever. And it's at that time that we need our friend's faith to help get us to Jesus too. We were never intended to live a life of faith on our own. Jesus gave us the gift of the church. He gave us the gift of this community to have faith for one another when our faith fails. Get to Jesus, okay? Dig through what you got to dig through and haul your friends along with you. Because sometimes I'm going to be the one on the mat. Sometimes you're going to be the one on the, on the mat. But together, a community of faith just gets to Jesus. That's my prayer for our church. I pray we're a church that digs for one another. I pray that we are open and authentic and vulnerable about our deepest needs, not just the presenting ones, not just the ones that are easy to talk about. I pray that we continually hold up the greatness of the author of life and worship him together. I pray that we enjoy the forgiving, restoring grace of his forgiveness on our behalf. And I pray we dig for one another. That when someone's on the mat, you get them to Jesus. Because at some point, you're going to be on the mat. And you're going to need friends to get you there, too. I pray that our faith will carry one another into the healing arms of our Savior. Let's pray for that right now as we close. Jesus, thanks for the miracle of forgiveness. Thanks for all that it cost you. And thanks for forgiving everything in our life, past, present, and future, the stuff we know about and the stuff we don't. Your death on the cross covers it entirely. And we submit to you, our King, We fall at your feet, and we say, Jesus, take care of us. You are good. We accept your diagnosis of our life, and we want your healing. Jesus, make us a church that digs for one another and carries one another into your healing presence. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.